Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Welcome to Profiling Evil Podcasts by Mike King. You might be surprised to know that more than 10 million people in, are in prisons around the world. The inmate population in the United States has grown by more than 20%, although I suspect with COVID and the coronavirus pandemic that we've been going through, those numbers have declined uh, quite rapidly probably in some areas. But today I'm speaking with Scott Carver, the former director for the Utah Department of Corrections about the penal system in the United States. So Scott, welcome aboard. Well, thank you, Mike. It's great to be here with you and and your uh, listeners. Let me tell everybody just a little bit about you. Uh, I, your career is amazing to me, and I want to make it very clear that Scott is a couple years older than me. He actually started about four years before I started on the police department, but he began his law enforcement career uh, back in 1975. But by 1987, he had tra transitioned from uh, working the streets and doing law enforcement work to the Utah Department of Corrections. And, and the thing that I think is so amazing is that within five years of starting in corrections, he was promoted to warden. And I think that was about the first time Scott and I really started working together again. And I, of course, only knew him uh, beforehand, but it was when he was serving as uh, warden in the prison and when he was serving in, uh, in the maximum security area. By 2005, he was appointed the executive director of the prison, a position that he held for two years. And this is an incredibly intense position. But it didn't stop there. Uh, Scott retired from corrections and took the undersheriff job in the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office, where he served for another 11 years as undersheriff in the largest county in the state of Utah. And uh, today he spends his time as the director of training for the Utah Attorney General's office, my uh, old stomping ground. So I love it. Scott, you've served the public for like 40 plus years. There's, This is just amazing. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been a, it has been a great career and I've enjoyed every day, but a few of them and uh, learned a lot along the way and made some great uh, friendships and relationships and a, and a handful of enemies, but uh, I know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, there's so many things we could talk about, but what I really want to focus on is I want to dig into corrections and help the listeners understand a little more about it. And and I thought I'd just start off with, with this question. what What's the role of corrections in the United States? Because Wikipedia just kind of simplifies it by saying it's it's about punishment, treatment, and supervision. But, but you give us a little different view on that. Well, yeah, and I appreciate that question. And I appreciate uh, everyone who may be listening in here because uh, corrections is one of those 
government responsibilities that does not uh, generate a lot of, of interest or uh, someone delving into it, including government officials. It, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, don't tell me what's going on there. Just keep me out of the media and just yeah. take care of things, make sure they run smooth and um, uh, everything will be all right. And so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because it is a, a central government responsibility. You know, the, uh, the history of corrections goes, goes way back. Uh, I guess the first correctional philosophy was just banishment. If someone was not uh, living up to the, the morals, the mores, and the codes of the clan or the, the group that they lived in, they just uh, banished them. And that was actually a death sentence. Uh, because you had to have someone uh, to support you in order to live. As society grew and uh, became more sophisticated, unfortunately, crime didn't go away. There were still those who chose to live differently than uh, what the rest of the society wanted them to, to do. And so we, uh, you know, just fast forwarding, I guess, uh, to America, the Quakers were the first people to actually uh, build a penitentiary. And, and that terminology, penitentiary, still exists today. Uh, but in, in that context and mind, it was, okay, we are going to take you and have you pay uh, penance for your misbehavior. And we're going to do that by uh, taking you out of society. We're not going to banish you, but we're going to uh, sequester you. We're going to incarcerate you. And then we're going to have you uh, study the Bible, learn moral lessons, and come to the realization of where you went wrong and correct your behavior. So, so that was really the, the first basis of a prison system, penitentiary system. And it, it actually was based on good principles, which is if we can get the individual to change their behavior by realizing where they went wrong and, and bring themselves back in line with the uh, requirements of the society, then we are all safer for it. The individual uh, changes his life, has a better life. The rest of society doesn't have to worry about that individual, and everything is uh, goes along good. When you when you've studied when you've studied history, do you find that it is very similar from going back to those early Quakers to today in the um, amount of uh, time someone would spend in a in a penitentiary, what the release would be like for them, how they would be accepted coming back. I mean, have we changed much? Well, we no, we've not changed very much, which is sad, and it, it's uh, negative to our own society, and it's and it's for several reasons. Uh, part of it is, as I mentioned in the my opening statement. Nobody really cares about it. They just don't want 
bad things to happen, but they also don't want to be responsible for it and get involved in it. Help everyone understand why some people go to a county jail and others end up in a state or a federal prison. Uh, that has to do with the category of the crimes involved. So uh, in our state system, there are two categories, misdemeanors and felonies. Misdemeanors are those lower level, uh, less serious types of crimes that uh, carry with them a, a fine or a incarceration period within a jail. By definition, a felony is you are eligible to be incarcerated in a prison. And so the felonies are uh, much more serious crimes. And uh, as I mentioned, they have categories, uh, third degree, second degree, first degree uh, types of felonies. Misdemeanors have A, B, C and infractions, uh, which are a third category, actually. And those are those are like traffic tickets and, and do not carry an incarceration period with them. The, the yeah. federal system are pretty much all felonies. Uh, and and so you're incarcerated, but it's in a federal penitentiary, uh, not in a state prison. Yeah, I think people would be interested to understand uh, that at least some inmates that I've talked to would much prefer to be in a prison than in a county jail. It, maybe you could kind of describe, because our minds would say, no, I don't, I don't want to be in a prison. Yeah, so uh, jails are uh, built for short-term housing. And so there is not much in the way of uh, so-called amenities that are found in a jail. Uh, there's, there's not uh, big rec yards. There's uh, not a lot of uh, treatment. There is some, but uh, not an extensive amount because they don't plan on the person being there. Uh, in fact, the uh, longest length of stay uh, legally that you can uh, spend in a jail is one year. And, and, of course, most of those sentences are way shorter than that. In prison, they are built for long-term housing. So they will have rec yards. Uh, they will have jobs. They'll have uh, school, um, including, you know, uh, GED programs, high school graduation programs, and college courses, and technical uh, course or vocational uh, courses in a prison. So there's, uh, there's more freedom, if you will, in a prison than there is in a jail. Yeah. And it might, uh, you know, I think back in, in the times that I was at the prison, the thing that I found pretty remarkable is the amount of movement that goes on in a day in a prison. And, uh, I, I now have become involved in some of the mapping of interiors of prisons to look at how do you move inmates so that you don't have conflict points where inmates get 
in conflict with other inmates like rival gang members or sex offenders who come across people who would be threatening to sex offenders. I mean, talk a little bit about the management of moving inmates from medical to food lines and and classes and all of that stuff, because it's remarkable what you do inside of a prison. People aren't just sitting in a cell all day long. No, and um, it is quite a scheduling feat that uh, takes place inside an institution because you, inside the population, the inmate population, there are categories of offenders that um, are decided based upon their behavior. It's not based upon their their crime, so to speak, except for uh, rare occurrences where the crime is related to a need to keep them safe, so to speak. Um, other than that, the where an inmate is housed is based upon their behavior inside the institution. So someone who comes in for a, a very minor type crime, uh, say a third degree felony, auto theft, um, may end up being housed in maximum security because their behavior is such that they they cannot function appropriately in what we term as general population. Uh, general population, it, it, categorically speaking, it's easier to understand if you have maximum minimum and medium type housing and where maximum security uh, would be where you would house those offenders who cannot manage their behavior in the rest of the population or they're on death row. So uh, you do not want those people mixing with others in the population uh, for a lot of reasons Uh, or they're in protective custody for uh, a very serious situation where their life is in danger if they are in a uh, general population. And so, th- so those people are in maximum security and they are very much restricted as to what, how they can move about, who they can uh, be outside of their cells with. And because it's all a security concern that everything in that housing unit is driven by security concerns. Yeah, walk us walk us through what a day in a maximum security inmate's life is like. How much time they have to do different things. Okay, so in maximum security, there are, there are actually are a couple of different levels. So the the most secure area where, for the example, we'll use death row might be. Um, and actually, this may have loosened up because, uh, you know, we were working on, you know, maybe it's not uh, beneficial for everyone to just keep them locked down. But in the most restrictive setting, an inmate will be locked in their cell for 23 hours a day. Uh, The one hour that they have out uh, will be out to shower, um, to, to get some exercise in a very restricted small area, uh, basically an enclosed, uh, courtyard, uh, where they can, uh, you know, get 
a little bit of fresh air. Uh, about about how big? Uh, about oh, 15 by 15. Amazing, um, yeah. With, uh, you know, your block walls all the way up uh, higher than you could climb or fashion a rope <laughs> yeah. or any of that um, with a with a uh, fence over the top of it. Um, and the, the rest of the time, you're going to be in your cell, no cellmate with you, uh, so you're just by yourself. And, and how big how big is a cell in maximum security? Uh, eight by ten. Yeah, uh, I mean when you, when you would walk the floor, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I was in the prison, Scott, and and there wasn't a time that I didn't come out and really take a deep breath, smelling that fresh air. And I mean, what was it like for you day after day to go and 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 see? the places where these people would spend their lives. Well, it was uh, very interesting because uh, they get to be like your community. Uh, when they're in, in prison, of course, uh, in, in maximum security, there are the barriers that are uh, designed to keep everybody safe from someone who may want to harm you. And so there's there's not physical contact there that's not under great restraint or control. Um, out in general population, like you mentioned, inmates will be coming and going. They're they're going to work. They're going to school. Um, they're going to the the dining hall, and and <clears throat> so there's a lot of movement about. But they get to be just like you know, walking around in your neighborhood uh, because they they mind their selves. They're not confrontational. They're not hostile. Uh, they're just, in, in that setting, they're just regular people. And because if they misbehave, they go to maximum security. Um, yeah. What uh, The other interesting part about that is the officers that work there do not research the offender's offenses, um, except for certain uh, responsibilities and, uh, you know, for classification or uh, selection for programs. Other than that, officers don't know why these people are in prison uh, unless you're on death row. Uh, and, you know, that's best because you, you want to treat them the way they're uh, behaving right now and and how they've been treating uh, so that they can, um, you know, make the most of their time as well. And that is exactly what we want them to do is, is behave in a way that is consistent with our society and uh, uh, manage their behaviors among the rest of us so that we can feel comfortable when they do come out. This is really amazing when I think about this process and the fact that it is a, a, a city of its own. And uh, you have to move people from education courses to doctors to, to the to the lunchroom. Um, give everybody a sense of what the intake process is for someone who's never been to prison. It's their first day uh, being transported from the court and the county 
into the prison. What, what happens to someone like that? And what is the first couple of months like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's quite a uh, an experience for someone who's never been there before. Of course, most of the population has been there uh, because of the recidivism rate, uh, which for those who are not familiar with that term, it is the rate at which uh, people return to prison after having been released, and and that figure and the number is alarming. I mean, what what is the percentage? Well, it it ranges depending on how it's calculated, which makes a big difference uh, between sixty five percent and eighty percent, depending on how you how you calculate what the the recidivism is, and and the the main factor is. Or, or the definition of that is they return to prison for a new offense is one uh, definition. The other is they return to prison for any reason. Um, a third is, or a third factor is they return within one year or they return within three years. So that formula can be managed in different ways and you come up with different numbers. We're talking about corrections and, and the prison system, and right now we're talking about recidivism or the repeat of offenders returning back to prison for new offenses. The the numbers are alarming. And Scott, one question I had is: is there a statistic that shows how long, on average, it is before there is a repeat offense that sends them back to prison? Well, uh, that varies, as you can imagine, and. The longer they're out, the better chance they have of staying out, if that makes sense. So um, a lot of them, you'll see more cases of reoffense within the first six months, um, actually wow. within the first three months, and then six months, then a year, then three years. So uh, again, is there a reason for that? I mean, are we not, are we not getting them? A, a credible job fast enough, or what, I mean, what are the reasons for that? Well, you can imagine uh, anyone coming out of prison with that uh, label on you is going to, going to have a hard time getting a job. Now, that's assuming that this individual had all the skills and the opportunities prior to going to prison uh, that the rest of us have. So, uh, you know, this kind of takes us into to another category of, uh, you know, the the basis of crime and criminal behavior and where does it come from? Um, you know, so in the prison system, we're receiving adults. They're 18 years of age or older for the vast majority of them. And then when they're released, they go back to the same environment that created them in the first place. So do yeah. we expect that there's going to be a big change? You know, I equate it to trying to change someone's religion when they come to prison, because we're going to tell them, you know what, everything you've done in your life basically is wrong. Uh, you're not normal. You're not doing things right. And we want you to do it differently. And, you know, very few people understand that or believe that. And 
And then within, you know, an hour of dropping back into their old neighborhood with their old friends who come to welcome them back into hood, uh, <clears throat> things, uh, you know, things go down the tube real quick. So, yeah. um, you know, that that's kind of a, a snapshot there. But uh, back to the question about intake. Yeah. So, so a, a person, let's say he's never been to prison before. And uh, he comes into prison. The first thing that happens is uh, they are uh, put in an area. It's called receiving an orientation that uh, is in a lot of respects. You have little contact with other offenders because we don't know what your security concerns are, uh, what your behaviors are like and how it's going to relate to the others that are there too. You know, over the years and, and uh, decades, the prison population has got much more complex with uh, gang members um, <clears throat> is, is really the biggest uh, complicating factor of the population inside of prison and, and maintaining control amongst a, a, population that may have uh, two to 10 different uh, gang affiliates in the same housing unit. And that makes everything difficult because of, you know, gang issues, whether they're rival gangs or uh, within the same umbrella gang where they are vying for power and authority and, and turf, which still happens inside the prison. So they will, so an individual coming in, uh, they're in receiving an orientation or RNO, we call it. Uh, they will be assessed, which means uh, we'll have uh, caseworkers, uh, psychologists, people, and medical people come in. And, and uh, over the next several weeks, we'll be doing assessments on that individual to find as much information as there possibly could be to find about them. Uh, you know, what is their mental and medical health? Because that plays a big uh, role in everything. What is their gang affiliations? Uh, what was their upbringing like? What is their education level? What's their substance abuse history? Um, do they have mental illness? Uh, is their crime a sex offense? So they're going to need sex offender treatment. Um, all of those sorts of analysis and and uh, testing is going to be going on so that when the decision is finally made to, to put them in which of the three housing categories, maximum, medium, or minimum, when those are made, you want to, you want to get it right because it could be life or death if you get it wrong. And uh, so, so they will spend uh, usually two months in there uh, going through that process. So now thinking back to about the average length of stay being under a year, you've just burned up two months of it. And, and you have yeah. done nothing to that individual that's going to change anything. And uh, so then they, after that period of time, 
the staff will get together. They staff each individual uh, inmate and decide, okay, uh, they will work best in this uh, population. And uh, so then they get their housing assignment and they, they go off to that. Once they've uh, landed in their, uh, you, oh, uh, backing up. So in R&O, uh, what they will create is a treatment plan for that individual, which will outline everything that that individual is expected to achieve and go through in order to help themselves solve the problems that have been identified through that analysis. Uh, they do a risk and needs assessment, which uh, you know helps them determine how much risk is this individual of reoffending and being a problem in the institution, and what are their needs? Uh, what's their education level? Do they do they have anything beyond a eighth grade uh, education? You know, do they have a yeah. raging substance abuse problem or a pornography addiction problem, which has uh, worked its way up to manifesting self in itself and acting out and creating victims. And as you're well aware, there could be hundreds of victims. So just to clarify, when you said R&O, receiving an orientation, am I remembering that right? And, and uh, so is that period of time uh, the greatest risk of suicide in the prison time? Now, they've come from jail, so they've been incarcerated. Um, but because now they've got, you know, their sentence, you know, they could be looking at life. Um, and, yeah, so when they come in there, they're under uh, very frequent checks by the housing officers that work there. Yeah. Um, so, so now I want to, I want to just kind of transition a little bit and talk about life day to day inside of the prison. Uh, what, what is the biggest cause of conflict or violence in a prison system? Well, there uh, are several there and probably the, the number one is uh, and and it's probably not the same definition as you and I would have, but it's respect or lack of respect for someone. You know, um, it's uh, that environment in there is it, it's uh, I don't want to say a facade, but the inmates control everything that goes on inside the prison and allow the officers to run it. And by that, I mean, you know, when, because there are, you know, 6,000 of them and, you know, maybe a couple hundred of us working at a time. So, wow. so, uh, you know, but they control. Is there an they, internal penal system? Not specifically. Um, you know, the, in, and, we gained much more control than, than was in previous. We, we developed a program where if you were not doing something positive and beneficial, you stayed locked down in your cell. Even if you were in medium security 
or minimum security, uh, you had to have a job or go to treatment or go to school or else we didn't want you wandering around because you're just going to get into trouble. And yeah. And so that was a, the incentive for a lot of them to get into school and to apply for jobs uh, and get into treatment because otherwise sitting in your cell all day, every day, is, that's, a, that's a long time. That's a hard sentence. So uh, I want to just kind of get a sense from you of what your worst day as a warden or a director was if you look back on your career. Is there one you could share? Uh, yeah, let's see. Worst, worst days, you know, um, when you lose a staff member, an officer is – by far the worst thing that could uh, possibly happen. Fortunately, uh, during my tenure there, we did not have any officers uh, murdered. Uh, we had uh, several officers who died from uh, health situations. And, uh, and, and that was a terrible, terrible thing to go through. Yeah, and you lost, you lost, officers that we pulled into the community like Fred and others that that you lost in the course of backing up law enforcement outside of the prison. Yeah, correct. Uh, Steve Anderson, um, Fred, of course. And, uh, you know, so, so that was terrible. Um, the uh, Lonnie Blackman homicide by Troy Kell was, that was a rough day. Horrid. Uh, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, probably the worst day uh, during my time there. Um, and you know, and generally we had a safe uh, system and as you know, a safe institution. But uh, that kind of blew us away when that happened. Yeah, I, I um, and it, and thankfully it's something that most people will never see. But watching the imagery of that uh, murder, I don't think anyone that watched that will ever get over it. Uh, not not only just the absolute brutality, but the fact of Kel pausing and getting his wind and and uh, you know wiping his hands and then going back and continuing to to murder this man. That was that was horrid. So, so let's change this a little bit. What, what were some of the funniest things that happened? Oh. <laughs> well, the funniest things, and actually, I wish I would have kept a diary of uh, funny things that inmates did. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not making fun of them in a denigrating way. Uh, they're just like the rest of us, you know. They uh, have humorous sides and. And that, but I, uh, one of the things I remember was I did a survey, I, an inmate survey, and I asked him a, a whole bunch of questions and uh, about being in prison. And the intent of the survey was based upon their responses that, that we could review those and, and make some positive changes that might help them along the way. Uh, one of the questions was, um, <laughs> strangely enough, uh, what do you like best about prison? 
And, uh, you know, I, I kind of put that in there just to see what the responses would be. And my favorite one of all, I said, <laughs> the lasagna. <laughs> no, he said, I don't have to worry about getting hit by a car. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, you know, I, I uh, laughed about that. I still do. Um, <laughs> I remember, had, I remember uh, one one inmate who uh, promised to help me with something if I could call you and. Get him moved to B block where he can have some nicer housing, and uh, and his his uh, help came through. And thank thanks to you, he he was able to go to B block. I think for almost a month before he violated did something wrong and got sent back to a different place. But. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how they how they do it. And you know, another uh, funny thing was. Uh, Stephen King came out and filmed part of uh, his movie The Stand uh, at really Utah State Prison. And so, if you ever watch that movie, the uh, uh, the prison scenes are at Utah State Prison. There. So while they were filming, uh, as you recall in the movie, there's a there's some sort of virus. Uh, that's let loose and I don't know if it's a coronavirus or not, but it's <laughs> let loose and it, it kills people and in this real horrible way. And, and uh, it ends up infecting, getting in the, the prison and killing a bunch of the people in the prison. Well, in order to film that they brought in a bunch of uh, mannequins that were made up to look like, uh, inmates that were all bloated, puffy, and blisters and sores and boils and and blood oozing and everything, and then they would put them around in the cells and and film them. Uh, so uh, I I went in there and I took a picture of a couple of them in the cell, and uh, then I. Uh, it, it, playing a prank on my boss. <laughs> I, oh, no. Pictures over, and I said, well, we had a, a, a little bit of a skirmish over in one of the housing units, and and uh, this inmate kind of got the worst of it and showed him the picture of it. <laughs> and he's looking at it, and he goes, oh, wow, uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, then I had to tell him it was fake. But yeah, that's amazing. So, um, one of the toughest responsibilities of a warden or a a director, I would think, is carrying out an execution. Can you just talk about that responsibility? I don't want to share any specifics other than to talk about that responsibility and how um, how you manage the public who had, there's a portion that want to um, um, stand out and protest and, and uh, but you have a job to do. Maybe you could talk about that for a moment. Yeah, so the death penalty is an interesting thing. Uh, lots of debate, lots of feelings about it. 
surrounding it. And, uh, you know, it's, um, and, and the reason there's so much debate obviously is because, uh, the state is going to take the life of someone, um, on, on one hand. And there are those people who under no circumstances, uh, believes that that is justified. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you have individuals who, um, by our law, which is very finely uh, crafted and very narrowly defined, qualified because of the horrendous nature of the crime they committed, which always involves taking the life of at least one other person, and um, in a horrendous way. And it's not just taking the life of someone, it is the way in which that life was taken that will qualify them for the death penalty. Uh, there are many uh, types of murders, um, and and many people are are murdered, and the perpetrator does not uh, get sentenced to the uh, death penalty. So uh, that's uh, the situation in which you're working is is very limited and the again the people based upon their crime and the judgment of the courts uh whether it be and juries in this case uh, as well as the board of pardons by the time it actually gets carried out uh have met the requirements and uh for uh having a death penalty carried out upon them so when that situation comes around, and it is not uh, very often, which is another source of contention for the opponents to the death penalty, is the, the amount of time it takes uh, to carry out uh, the penalty. And it, it could be in excess of 20 years. And so they say, well, that's not even a deterrent because it's not swift and and, uh, you know, you go 20 years from the time of the offense, uh, what's the use? You know, what are we trying to do? Um, the other debate is, is it a deterrent? Which, you know, if it's not a deterrent, then why do we do it? Um, part of that argument is, well, it's a deterrent to the person who you just executed, uh, those people will not uh, murder again. And um, so that, I mean, and that's just a philosophical debate among people and there. And, you know, it's split uh, pretty much equal sides. It's kind of interesting, but um, so the process is you, you start, preparing for that, once the court has issued the final uh, execution warrant, uh, you start planning for it 60 days before the scheduled date, uh, because you do not want things to go wrong. And we've seen around the country where executions did not go uh, as they were planned and intended, and it's just a terrible, terrible outcome. So um, you start planning in Utah, 
there are actually two types of uh, execution methods, lethal injection and firing squad. The firing squad is no longer available uh, to inmates who are uh, now sentenced to die, but uh, there are, uh, I, I would have to look up the number, but uh, two or three who elected the firing squad when it was available, so those uh, will still be carried out as a firing squad execution. And maybe you could talk, Scott, about how, how that works and, and the the weapon that doesn't have a bullet versus the one that does? Or Sure. So there are uh, five... Uh, executioners, all with uh, identical rifles. Uh, that execution squad is actually chosen by the sheriff of the county in which the crime was committed. Uh, they're not prison employees. Um, so um, the cartridges are loaded by hand uh, by an individual that's uh, determined by the correction system. Uh, the four of the rifles will have live ammunition in it. One will have a, a blank, but it will be loaded so that there is a, a felt recoil to it. Um, and, and that's a, I don't know if you'd call it a, a tradition or a help in which they're careful about the aftermath of being involved in a, in taking someone's life in that manner where uh, they, they want to give the opportunity of someone so needs that to say, well, uh, you know, I had the blank in my rifle and so I did not kill that individual. And uh, so that's typically the, the reason behind that. And I think it's a good uh, reason to have that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. And uh, there's only been, well, let's see. Uh, Gary Gilmore, uh, as execution started up, was a firing squad. And uh, John Taylor uh, from Ogden was a firing squad. Yep. And I, I'm, there may have been one more since then, but I've lost track of that. And then lethal injection, maybe you could just describe that process. Of which? I'm sorry. Of lethal injection. Lethal injection, uh, there's a cocktail of three different uh, drugs that are all lethal by and of themselves. And uh, it's done under a doctor's supervision. Uh, There are IVs run into... Uh, both arms, and uh, there are uh, the the three drugs are administered um, in succession, and because they all accomplish a different thing. Uh, the first one is a sedative, and the second one uh, stops the heart, and the third one stops all other nerve functions. And but each one is lethal. And uh, if it's administered properly and, uh, you know, nothing 
uh, is uh, under a mistake or, you know, the, the IVs are inserted properly, the drugs are, are the, the right ones in the right amounts, um, death is pretty instantaneous uh, within seconds. And there, there is no, if it's done properly, uh, there is no pain felt by uh, the inmate. It, it uh, is exactly the same as going into surgery and going under anesthesia. And that's uh, the end of it. Um, there, you know, some movie portrayals will will show, you know, some pain uh, reaction, but there is none. Yeah, that is an incredible obligation to place on people in the correctional system to have to to fulfill those kinds of responsibilities. I just want you to know, I I always had a great deal of respect for your ability to do that and and treat people with dignity and, and life with dignity. I, I, I want, as we wrap up, to just give you a chance to talk about maybe uh, an example of when it all worked and somebody who put their life together and, and now has a happy, successful life after being an inmate. Anybody well, you can think of? Um, you know, that's hard for me to uh, identify someone because I never see him again. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess that is success, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No news is good news in that case. So if, if we never see them back, uh, that's just what we want. And, you know, I did have an experience here just uh, within a, the last uh, year or so. I uh, was at an event, uh, and a guy came up to me and, and said, aren't you uh, Scott Carver? And I said, <laughs> yes, I am. And he said, uh, I'm so-and-so's husband. And I recognized the name as a offender that I had on parole uh, 30 years ago. And so I said, well, uh, how's she doing? And he says, she's doing great been out ever since, off drugs, been sober for 30 years, uh, you know, got a very nice family and are doing well. And, um, you know, that was a great story, you know, because when I was working parole, there were, there were like two people that made it off parole uh, on my caseload because I had a high risk caseload and they just you know from the time they came out they were not uh, intending on obeying the law and that is what's required of course by all of us so yeah. so unfortunately I, I don't have a lot of those stories because uh, but I counted a good thing that uh, they come out and uh, are successful and and make a life for themselves yeah. Would, would you do corrections any differently? Uh, in what way? If, like if I were king for a day and... Uh, if it were your planet, what would you do? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would start back in school, like, like we had mentioned before. Uh, and I would, I would require 
things to be done there that used to be done, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know require that they behave themselves and, you know, uh, live by the mores of society and, you know, be courteous to people, be kind, you know, don't take other people's properties. It's just like the, the thing, the book, uh, everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten, you know, teach those responsibilities. So that would be one. Now, of course, everybody's not going to make it through the, make it through that anyway. And everybody uh, turn to be exceptional and good. So we'd still have uh, an incarceration period, but um, <clears throat> what we what we need to do is more treatment. You know, we have failed our ourselves by uh, not applying the dollars that it takes to uh, devote to treatment because just sitting in prison is not going to change anybody's life, and if if something good doesn't occur while they're there, we have wasted our money and we have got nothing for it. In fact, we've made our situation worse because now they have the stigma of prison. They're no better off and probably worse off now than when they came in. And so we need to, uh, to create a better treatment program Prison should be uh, a little a little bit of punishment, which is the incarceration part, the separation from your family and friends and getting to do what, what you want to do every day. Um, but it should be a lot of rehabilitation. And, and actually, being king for a day in here, um, <clears throat> I would require that the families participate in that as well because once again you can't send them back to the same environment that created them and think anything's going to be different yeah there you go well uh director scott carver thanks for uh gosh four decades of service to the public and for taking time to be on profiling evil podcast tonight and uh most of all for your friendship it's uh this this has been a long friendship and i really appreciate you and your family same here mike i i appreciate it as well and canada is one of my favorite things in life so so thank you it's been a pleasure to be here <laughs> well thanks uh, folks we'll see you on the next one and and uh, again thanks to the director and uh, and to all of you it, I hope it opens your eyes to a, a completely different side to law enforcement and to the men and women who serve in our institutions, whether it's at a county jail or at our federal prisons or here in our states uh, in the U.S. And, and for those of you in places around the world, the, the uh, challenges and the people are the same, although there may be a few uh, differences. So thanks a lot and have a great evening.
Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.